0: Oh, good morning, Storyline. I uh, saw that video and I could not resist because it's so frightening, isn't it? Like, I, I don't, if you're anywhere near my age, you get made fun of for not knowing how to use technology. And this is just, my kids make fun of me all the time about this. And, um, but this is, really, this is really something. It's unbelievable. 22 years old, no idea how to use a rotary phone. Like, what if she gets locked in a museum someday and has... Right? Like, nothing, no way, no way to get out. So, we've said this many times, but I think it bears repeating that be- because it is a source of so much frustration in life, I think, and yes, fun, but sometimes more than just a little bit of fear, things are changing faster than people can. I love that line, I think it is so true. Things are changing faster than people can. And there are all kinds of research showing us why this is so troubling, and young people feel it too. This was about 10 or 12 years ago. My freshman history class was in the computer lab at Lakeshore High School and they're doing some research. And I had a teacher's aide that year who was a senior in high school. So 17 or 18 years old. And he comes up to me and he goes, Mr. G, uh, Melissa's texting over there. And I was looking right at her and I'm like, no, she's reading her computer screen. I can clearly see that. And he goes, goes, no, look below the table. So I look underneath the table (laughs) And sure enough, under her desk, her thumbs are going a million miles an hour like this. It was like one of the miracles of the world. I couldn't believe it. She was texting without looking on one of these new smartphones, you know? And um, I was stunned. I turned to my TA TA, and I go, can you do that? And he looked at me with this look of disgust. He goes, no, kids these days. 17, he's like horrified with kids. Look, our aversion, our aversion to change is real. It's real. And yet also, we have this intense attraction to all things new. Both of these feelings we now know are psychological, they're a psychological reality that go beyond just like mixed emotions. They're actually rooted in our biology. So social psychologist Jonathan Haidt calls our love-hate relationship with change, the omnivore's dilemma. It's really great. Now, here's how he explains it. Omnivores, like us, like human beings, must seek out and explore new potential foods while remaining wary of them until they're proven safe. Omnivores, therefore, go through life with two competing motives. Neophilia which is an attraction to new things, and neophobia, which is a fear of new things. Now, you can relate to that. I could probably relate to that. I hear someone out there who's relating to that and sitting in the dark. But it's not just food that posed that threat. When early man began living in larger groups, they greatly increased their risk of infection from each other. So the adaptive challenge, therefore, was the need to avoid pathogens and parasites and other threats that spread by physical touch or proximity. This drove the development of sanctity. Now, catch this. I love this. If we had no sense of disgust, I believe we would also have no sense of the sacred. Now, this is why we have this war going on within ourselves all the time. Like, why new is alluring, because it might make things better. But change is also hard, because it could make things worse. Now, this is also why every generation struggles with the one that follows it. You know, like, well when we were young, I mean, how many pe- we all say that all the time, of people who are younger than us. Now, put that ancient emotion and that biological level of tension into the warp speed of change today and we have the omnivores dilemma on like steroids, leaving all of us to wonder, is anything sacred anymore? I know I get that feeling, oh, but you get that feeling too, like, my goodness, is nothing sacred? Now, some of us are more open to change and to new things than others are, and storyliners tend to skew in that direction for reasons that we've discussed before openness to new experience. And a a lot of that has to do with, I think, generally speaking, this is like a plan B community. Like if you're here, if you resonate with storyline, it's probably because something has gone wrong. Okay. I'm not pointing fingers at you. I'm just, I'll share my story. Okay. Somewhere, somehow like life has fell off the rails in a way that you couldn't foresee, you couldn't predict, knocked you off your feet. And, you know, conventional approaches, traditional definitions of spirituality or church, frankly, or the sacred and the disgusting just weren't working for you. So, new, for a lot of us, is less threatening than it is to maybe the average person on the street. But I think it's really important for us to recognize something. There is no solution to this omnivores dilemma. It is a continuum from disgusting to sacred, from a fear of what's new to a fear of, uh, to a disgust with what's new or what's old to a fear of what's new. So we need to learn to live like in this tension between what is new and improved and what is tried and true. And I think what, we're, what we've been seeing this summer as we've been reading through the book of John is that the faith that Jesus is inviting us to live in and to live out does just that. He finds a way to live in that tension because what he, he is em, embodying in his life in the book of John is radically hopeful about what could be while at the same time deeply respectful about the best of what has been. Ben, And I think we're going to see that in the story that we're going to look at today. So here's the question that I would like to kind of just throw out there for us to be running in the background as we explore this together this morning. How do we move forward with a sense of optimism and hope into an unknown future from a present that's changing faster than we can? Or maybe another way to think about it is, how do we cultivate a future that keeps the best of what was and can still welcome the best of what could be? See, Jesus seems to keep bringing us back to this issue over and over again in the book of John. We've been, um, people approach him with all kinds of agendas, and it's not that any of them are completely illegitimate. Some of them are legitimate, but Jesus seems to have this, like, priority This mission that supersedes all of these other concerns about politics and religion and even morality sometimes. It's almost like he's saying, if we miss this one thing, if we miss his mission, it's going to be very difficult, maybe even impossible, to navigate everything else that's going to be coming at us in life. And his one thing is the gospel of grace. Grace. And in chapter 9 of John, we see this yet again. A man comes to Jesus, and what Jesus does throws the religious establishment, uh, people who were total neophobes, they were allergic to anything new, it throws them into an uproar. Like they are mired in the past in their own rules and how things have always been to the point where they are literally blind to the grace of God when it's right in front of their face. Call it religion, or legalism, or if you want to, you can call it maybe like a hyper-nostalgia. But the inability to see, much less like look for, how is God moving today? How is God interacting with this ever-changing world has blinded them to what could be. Now, all that being said, I think before we jump into this, before we get too critical of people who are scared of the future or resistant to change, I think it's important for us to recognize our own resonance with that kind of resistance.
1: But oh, God, this reminds me of where we are. Nobody told me that you
0: this, guys. That's so great. I, any irony there in having a 14-year-old sing about nostalgia at all? <laughs> oh, back at junior high, those were the days. Last week, you know. But do you feel that? Oh my gosh, the power of nostalgia. We need to feel that in that scene or in this song. Like, and by the way, that's cursive kids, okay? But <laughs> it, ca- it can mean... It can mean the pain, nostalgia can mean the pain from an old wound, but also, it also can mean, and this is the real sacredness of it, a longing for the time when we knew we were loved. That's what it is. And every change, even the most well-intended change, can feel like a threat to that. And I really believe so much of the tension that we're living through right now in our country is this debate between how much do we need to change, how fast, what's too much, too far, and some people hitting the brakes and some people hitting the accelerator. And it's something we're gonna talk about this fall later, that that same theme, but when when our nostalgia, when that is threatened, okay, it can evoke a, a sense of disgust. Like this is threatening everything I know. So we all sense this to some degree. We look at anyone younger. My children are in their early 20s, and I'll catch them saying things like, when we were young, you know, they look at junior high kids today or high school kids today. When we were young, things were simple. Everything wasn't so hectic. Everyone got along. It never rained. There was no winter. Ice cream was a vegetable. Blah, 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 blah. Right? (laughs) Come on. Right? A friend once told me there's a reason that the good old days is also an acronym, right? C.S. Lewis put it like this, if we could go back to those moments in the past, we would not find the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What we remember would turn out to be itself a remembering. These things, the beauty, the memory of our past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. I don't know if you sense that in your life, I certainly sense that in mine. But this is exactly why we cannot live on nostalgia. Not just because the world that we live in is simply never going to stop. It's because the past that we're remembering probably really isn't real. And to get stuck there is this lethal admission that our best days are behind us. Which is totally antithetical to the life Jesus is inviting us into. There's nothing wrong with healthy nostalgia, with longing for a time when we are loved, but, and, and the sacredness of that. But if that longing is only looking backward, it means that we are chained like slaves to the past. And it just, it's not going to work. And I know for many of us, because I know a lot of stories of the folks in this room that our life is on plan B at least. Something big didn't go right. And and I'm right there with you and I sense the draw and the danger of living life backward. I know I'm not alone in that. But it's also, it's like, what else is there to do if you're convinced the best is behind you? But the good news is that Jesus' way of grace has a way of balancing, of bringing into focus, of bringing together in the present the best of the past with the best of what could be. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here in chapter nine of John. Jesus is countering the religious establishment's fixation on nostalgia, their neophobia, if you will, with this exciting, this marvel of something new and unprecedented, unexpected and incredible breaking into life, this beautiful neophilia, this love for what could be next. It's like Jesus is saying, this is not about a religion designed to protect the past or to safeguard what we think is sacred. It's a way of life that can embrace the future because the God of grace is already there. Maybe the antidote, to idolizing the past and getting stuck is embracing the mystery of God's present and his future grace. Now I'm taking a long time here before we get to this passage that we're gonna look at this morning. We're just gonna look at a few phrases from it. But I think it's so important for us not just to paint the religious leaders of this time as the bad guys, which I, as you know, I often do, okay? But sometimes it's just too simplistic. Yes, they're stuck. Yes, they're angry and prideful and self-righteous, for sure. But I'm just asking us to admit, we know how they feel. You turn on the nightly news, you look outside, you hear about what's going on in the world, and it's coming at us too fast. It's too much too fast. So we can all relate to them a little bit. Even those of us who gave up on plan A long ago or had it ripped from our tight grip by something in life or someone. We feel the power of nostalgia and some of that fear of the future. So let's feel that and remember that so that we can also feel the freedom and the peace and the joy of accepting Jesus' invitation into the mystery of the life of faith in God's present and future grace. Okay, so in John 9, this, the whole chapter is about this one encounter. And this is what happens. Jesus is walking along, and it says that he basically comes up to a man. This is on the Sabbath, on the Jewish day of rest, the day when you're not allowed to do any work at all, okay? So Jesus is walking along. He comes upon a man who has been born blind, been blind his entire life. And Jesus has been healing people left and right, all over the place, of all kinds of different things. So the question becomes, like the subtext here is, is he gonna heal this guy on the Sabbath? Because some of the plan A people, some of the neophobes were like, that would be breaking the rules, right? And then the Bible says this, and this is like difficult to imagine because it's, frankly, it's just bizarre, all right? Jesus spits on the ground makes mud with his spit, stands up, and then smears it on the eyes of the blind guy. Now talk about disgusting, right? He tells him, go wash it off. When the guy washes it off, he can see. He's healed. Now the obvious question is, what in the world is up with the mud? Well, here's what we know it isn't. Okay, We know it isn't some kind of ritual We know it isn't magic Because Jesus healed people by simply touching them He's healed people by simply saying Be healed He's healed people not even in his presence So he didn't need to make the mud He is choosing to heal this man In this way for a reason But why? Why? Well this It's totally lost on us okay? But the people of that time would have seen right away what was going on. Because remember, they're all wondering. Everybody's asking the same question. Is he going to heal this guy on the Sabbath or not? And it was debatable, frankly. Some people are like, that would be breaking the rules. Other people are like, no, oh, I think that that would be fine, okay? So th- th- it's debatable. Can you heal on the Sabbath or not? But here's the thing. Making mud is ironically crystal clear. Making mud according to the religious rules, was work. It was work to make mud. To make mud was breaking the Sabbath. So here's Jesus, who could have healed this guy, like with a behind the back point, you know, like shabam, like that, he could, anything he wanted to do, right? He's choosing to purposely break the rules in a disgusting way, to make a point about seeing the sacred. It is, it blows my mind. It explodes my heart, the beauty and the brilliance and the genius of Jesus. You, you, we could not make this up. Please let yourself feel this, the shock and the disgust of seeing someone smear mud on someone's eyes. I mean, at the very least, we would say, this never would have happened when I was young, right? At the very least. But Jesus isn't just, you see what he's doing? He's not smearing mud really in the blind man's eyes. This mud is for the eyes of everyone who believes this isn't the way things are supposed to be. You're not supposed to be healing people on the Sabbath. This is Jesus breaking yet another tradition. And we've seen him do this every single chapter of the book of John so far. Choosing John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism, jumping into a river instead of going to the temple, that's breaking a huge tradition. He, He did it by turning the water of religion at a wedding where you get there and religion says you've got to wash yourself clean to be presentable to God. He turns that water, not the drinking water, the washing water, He turns that water into wine. I mean, that's a huge taboo. We've seen him do this by talking to a Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of the day. That's like at least three things wrong he's doing. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus down in the dirt again, this time drawing a line in the sand and placing himself on the same side of a woman caught in adultery and the religious rule keepers on the other side. This is not how things are supposed to be. Jesus is bringing together new and sacred in ways unimaginable before. It's like Jesus is saying, who is really blind here? At one point in this encounter, he actually says out loud, those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. Those who want only to preserve the past because frankly, the past was working for them. those who cling to their own rules because our best days are behind us. And the only way forward is to get back to how things used to be. Well, those folks thought they could see. They knew the rules, they kept the rules, and now they had a big, huge, massive problem with Jesus. Several years ago, we did a series of talks on how Jesus was a revolutionary revolutionary. (laughs) like a brand new kind of revolutionary, because he says things like this, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He recognized that some things from the past are sacred and worth hanging onto and bringing into the present and carrying with us into the future, yet he wasn't chained to the past. He is holding nostalgia for the best of the past in tension with the mystery of faith in God's goodness for the future. Even when the present is chaos. It's an amazing way to live. Very unique way to live. And here's the thing. The religious teachers were blind to all of this. They could not see, make out any of this. Because when you get down to it, they didn't really have faith in God. They had faith in themselves. All religion, ultimately, is faith in ourselves. If I'm, I'm gonna do X, I'm gonna avoid Y, I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna face this way, I'm gonna give this thing, I'm gonna do, and then God has to bless me. I've got God in my pocket. One writer put it bluntly, religion is a way to control God, to avoid him, really. But Jesus is introducing this something different. Something new. It's this mystery. It's a faith not in ourselves or in how accurately we believe or how thorough our theology is or how well we protect protect and preserve our version of plan A or the sacred, but of trusting that God is good. Trusting that God is good right here, right now, even into a future that we cannot control or even predict. Jesus is suggesting it is God's goodness, His love and grace that our souls are both nostalgic for as as we look back and hoping for as we look forward. This is a brand new way to relate to God. As I was preparing this talk this week, I kept asking myself, like how would I have responded to this, really? You know, I, I, always, I always find myself um, placing myself in these stories like the smart guy. But this probably wouldn't have been the case, right? I'm, I'm sh- quite sure I would have been disgusted by this. Am I blind to the goodness of God, to the God that chooses to come to us and move into the neighborhood, as John tells us in chapter 1? Am I blind to the grace of God who will stop at nothing, even breaking the rules to do what's best for us? Am I blind to the mystery, to the beauty of what I don't know? Will I allow that to capture my heart more than all that I think I need to know and control and secure? And then get defensive about. And then I remembered a time in my life, as I was asking myself these questions, I remembered a time in my life where mystery pleasantly surprised me. I was a senior in high school. My locker partner, lifelong friend, Brian Schnelbecker, I hope he's here so I can say thanks for nothing, played an epic, an epic, epic practical joke on me. He took my senior picture, which I am not going to display, and he pasted it on a full top of a full sheet of paper, and then on the bottom, in huge, well, we didn't have font back then, but he, you know, in a marker, he put this. Hi, my name is Mike Gathright, and I need a date. If interested, please call 429-7464. He ran off hundreds of copies of this flyer. I walked, out of school, I walked out of school one day, pink flyers under every windshield wiper on every car in the parking lot at Lakeshore High School. Okay? He put them up at that grocery store. He put them up at the mall when people went to the mall, right? It was the most horrifying and embarrassing moment of my life. But then something happened. Someone actually called. (laughs) Now, she wouldn't tell me her name. She didn't talk that much. And as hard as I had tried all throughout high school to get the attention of certain young ladies and nothing worked, and I know that's hard for you to believe, okay? (laughs) Out of nowhere, this person was pursuing me. And it changed my everyday experience. Someone pursuing you, someone after you. I would walk into my life, open the doors to Lakeshore High School, going down the hall wondering, who is this mystery girl? Who wants to know me? Who keeps calling me? Beautiful. Thanks, guys. So many great lines in that song. So, so many. I encourage you to listen to it when you can really soak it in again. But in that these lines describe, I think, what it is we're trying. I'm trying to talk about this morning. Last week was a story Sunday, and Bethany Darling was one of the folks that shared a storyliner in. Lisa and I were driving home from dropping our daughter off in Florida, listening to last week's um, gathering, and we're just totally overwhelmed, just captivated and mesmerized by Bethany's courage and wisdom, and by her grace, and by her faith, and she's telling a little bit of her story, and at one point she said that life was so difficult, so scary, so sad and hard that she retreated literally into a closet totally broken, and crying out to God, I don't want this. I don't want this. Until she finally felt this invitation to surrender. This is the mystery, I think, of standing on the edge of me. And I've been there. I hope, I was gonna say I hope you haven't, but I kinda hope you have. When, When we were told our daughter was terminal, I was standing on the edge of me. Right? That is an existential, I don't want this. That is plan Z. And maybe you've you've been there. I hope you haven't, but you probably have. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard calls this the leap of faith. Are we going to trust in what we thought we knew, in what we thought we wanted, in our sacred plan A, in what we were led to believe that religion would deliver to us, or are we going to fall into the arms of God? Bethany, Bethany describes so beautifully what Jesus is inviting us all into, the life of faith. It isn't just believing it, like some religion is true. It's trusting that God is good even when things aren't the way we want them now and when we are blind to the future that surrender that kind of surrender is excruciating but it's the only way to be set free because religion is this man-made scheme to control God they tell you where you need to go They tell you when you need to leave. They tell you what you'll need to know and tell you who you need to be. And it doesn't work. It's control parading as faith. It's nostalgia posing as hope. But this plan A, the problem with it, the fatal flaw with it, is that it makes us God and leaves God, at best, a sidekick. It's living with mud in our eye when grace is offering to us to set us free. In one place in the Bible, Jesus describes it this way, it is the blind leading the blind. Lisa's reading a book right now that our friends Wes and Bree gave to her. It's about farming and how farming is about life, and she read me this line this week, I love this. Farmers like us are always poised between nostalgia for a past that never existed and a hope for an idyllic future that never comes. The tension between those two narratives is part of what keeps us in it, vibrating between them like a note pulled from a taut string. So good. And I would add that the life of faith in God's goodness is not only letting go of the past that never really existed, but also surrendering ourselves to God in a way that he can set us free from our version of what an idyllic future would look like. And that's no small surrender. And maybe that's why after this man washed the mud off his eyes, he was healed, he could obviously see Most of chapter 9 is this big, huge rigmarole about the religious leaders trying to figure out what happened and how did he do it. Because This was something new. This was beyond their control. He broke the rules. This is not how it's supposed to be. If God shows up like this, anything could happen. And I don't think it's too much to say this. In the presence of the sacred, they were disgusted. And if that's not hell... I don't know what is. So they interrogated this man, trying to get him to say something that would impugn Jesus. What did he do to you? How did he heal you? And finally, this man born blind, this man for whom the past, their plan A, didn't work, said to the men with mud in their eyes, all I know is, I once was blind, but now
2: I see.
1: The sun for
0: We live in very tumultuous times. I think we all know that. Things are changing faster than we can. The past, for many of us, looks way better than the future. And if you find yourself saying, I don't want this, I promise you, you are not alone. And yet, in the midst of all this, what we find in Jesus is a God who is on our side. Who is inviting us into a living trust in his goodness for us it's more hope than nostalgia it's more surrender than control it's a relationship not a religion it is the mystery of god's amazing grace assuring us that this right here right now is the time when we can know we are loved. And that means for each and every one of us, the best is yet to come. Next week we're going to see that Jesus has a name for this kind of life. I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for your amazing grace, the way that you come to us, that you are with us, that you're for us, that you're on our side. I pray that you would help us to lean into the future because we know you are there. That you're waiting for us there, that you're with us now. Thank you so much for, the, for how you'd love us like that. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. Hope to see you next week.